starting a family is hard enough. You need to think about stuff like healthcare premiums, parental leave, and buying all the things like, you know, those pregnancy pillows. By the way, those things are absolute lifesavers. But what if you decide to adopt? Does it cost more or less than conceiving on your own? And once you spend all that money, are you even guaranteed a child? It was just the lack of control that caused me some anxiety because I felt like, all right, well, we put a nice little photo booklet together. I have no idea on the other side of the world who is going through this photo booklet, how it looks, how it's going to be perceived, and will we be selected? That's Andrew. Him and his wife decided to adopt a child overseas. While it is about the money, you know, adoption can be expensive. It really was about the emotional toll that it took on them. So if you've ever considered adoption or wonder what it's like to go through the process, then you'll want to stick around for this one. Welcome to Beyond the Dollar with me, Sarah Lee Kane, where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects your well-being. We go there. The guilt, stress, exhilaration, and fear, no topic is taboo. My guest today is Andrew Wong, host of Inspired Money. We chat about why him and his wife decided to adopt overseas, how much time and money he spent through the entire process, and some of the challenges even he didn't anticipate. Now stick around to the end where I'm going to distill some takeaways from our conversation, including resources and questions to ask yourself before seeking an adoption agency. Before we get started, one of the ways you can save for large expenses like adoption is by using your values to guide your spending. Luckily for you, I've created a values-based spending guide which can help you hone in on what you value the most and how to apply it to your financial life. To grab it, go to beyondthedollar.co slash values. To find resources shared in this episode, head over to beyondthedollar.co or click on the link in your podcast app. Now get ready, grab a seat, and let's go Beyond the Dollar. Andrew, welcome to Beyond the Dollar. So glad to have you on. Thanks, Sarah. It's so good to be here. So let's start from the beginning. So what really motivated you and your wife to decide to go the adoption route? Well, my wife and I have been together for a really long time. We met in college and we were already like before we got married, we were living together. We were both working. We had interest in starting a family, but didn't do that right away, right? We wanted to enjoy our single lives together. So we did some travel. And as I said, we were both working. And when it came time to have children, we found that we were not having success. So we did go the route of, you know, doing some fertility treatments. And that also did not work out. So we eventually reached a point where we knew we wanted to start a family. And we started looking at alternatives, including adoption. Okay. Did you ever consider adopting in the U.S., like foster children, anything like that before you decided to look outside the country? I don't think that we looked, we didn't look seriously. We had kind of done a little bit of research, but not too much into foster children. I grew up on the East Coast. My wife was born and raised in Hawaii. So I think my wife may have done a little bit of research because she was kind of curious, having grown up in Hawaii, a lot of families in Hawaii, you know, may not be doing that well financially. There are families or instances where 
kids are being put up for adoption. And I think that she was a little bit curious about, would it be possible to adopt domestically, specifically from Hawaii? But as we were doing more and more research, we were leaning or we leaned more towards international, primarily because on the international side, I think that there's a little bit less involvement from the birth family, whereas domestic adoptions, I think that the birth family is more involved. And we kind of like that separation. And the fact that my wife and I are both Chinese American, we were looking to adopt from Asia. We were looking at China. We were looking at Korea in doing our initial research. That's interesting because I know there's this legal term I can't think of on top of my head right now where some parents, I think, still have guardianship rights over their children. And so if you do adopt children that do have that, then the parents can get involved and it can get messy. Is that something you were just, you and your wife are just generally trying to avoid? Yeah, that was my understanding that if there's a domestic adoption or if you had surrogate, it can potentially get complicated because sometimes there are like a change of mind. And there may be a a baby that is up for adoption, all the paperwork's in place. But ultimately, you know, the birth mother may may change her mind. And, you know, that can just, that just causes like extra complexity to the whole process. Versus international, I think that tends to happen a lot less. So I know you were looking in Korea more specifically. Were there any countries, other countries that you were looking at? And was the decision based on something to do with the regulations or was it something else? We weren't even looking specifically at Korea. In doing our initial research, we we met or we went to different agencies in both New Jersey and New York. And those they have great informational sessions where they tell you about what the process is like, tell you about what trends are happening in the international adoption world. They'll give you some guidance on what expected costs might look like. And at that time, I'm trying to think what year this was. This was probably early to mid-2000s. And at that time, international adoptions, things were really slowing down in Korea, which had been a very popular country to adopt from. And a lot of this comes down to the Olympics, interestingly enough. And our focus was really looking at China. But there were some lessons to be inferred from what was going on or what had happened in Korea, which was that when Seoul hosted the Olympics, there's a lot of international media attention in the country. And because of that, there tends to be a significant slowdown in international adoptions because the host country they don't want the potential negative PR of media stories showing babies from their countries being adopted overseas. So Seoul, as an example, Korea, their adoption program had been a pretty vibrant one and had slowed down significantly when you looked at the annual numbers of children that, that were being adopted. And the expectation in the early 2000s to mid-2000s was that That was very likely to happen in China with the Beijing Olympics coming. So we were cognizant of that. And that was one of the things that we were concerned about because as the international adoptions become less, as they become more restrictive, there are more and more rules that are being put in place and there are fewer children being put up for adoption. 
That is so interesting. I never even considered that. So talking about the finances. So if there, I don't know if you know this, but if there were less children that were available for adoption or the the rules and restrictions were, were more regulated, did these adoption agencies anticipate higher fees, not just on the agency part, but maybe whatever fees you'd have to pay, the, let's say the Chinese government or the South Korean government? Yeah, I don't think that the expectation was that prices would be impacted. It was primarily this international media coming in country and that they didn't want the story of all these babies leaving the country. They viewed that as, as being negative. And because of that, they were becoming just more restrictive in the number of children being put up for adoption. And I guess as an alternative, you know, there are some, I think the governments are promoting more domestic in-country adoptions who are, you know, they need a home, they need a family, but the governments are, are trying to promote domestic adoptions within the country rather than having international adoptions and having kids leaving the country. Mm, okay, good point. So when you're visiting these agencies, <laughs> I hope this doesn't sound bad. I apologize to everyone listening if it does. Were you like shopping around? Like, were there different prices depending on the agency? Or how does it work, if you remember? <laughs> That's a really good question. I think that the answer is yes, because different agencies have different levels of service. Like anything else, some are more full service where they want to take care of all the necessary paperwork and administrative needs, and they'll process everything for you. There are other agencies that they want you to, they'll give you some guidance and do some of the paperwork, but some of it is your responsibility. So I think it's those differences that can impact what the overall expenses will be. I think average costs for international adoptions, I see published today, they say around twenty to $40,000. In our experience, I mean, it's been six to 10 years for us, right? So I think that pricing has gone up a little bit. You know, for us, definitely, if you look at cost of the agency, of U.S. government paperwork, that's like immigration, passports, travel, hotel, because you do go overseas, I would say that that figure is pretty accurate. I think for us, maybe it was somewhere around twenty to 30000 That's good to know. I was, I was just about to ask if that was an all-inclusive amount. So when you and your wife were, I'm going to put this in air quotes, shopping around agencies, did you had already both talked about what kind of level of service you wanted? Because I know you said there's different levels of service, like some really hold your hand, some kind of require you to do things on your own. So did you talk about that before or was it something that you were basically figuring out as you went along? We didn't discuss it that much in detail. I think that, you know, our first, our initial attempt to collect data and educate ourselves, that was kind of going to all kinds of different agencies. Whenever they had an information session, we could go there to learn and to familiarize ourselves with the process. And at that time, our discussions were more about what country should we consider adopting from? And I think that even looking at different countries, I mean, there are a lot of different variables. One is price because pricing can vary country to country. And then the other thing to think about is like the care of the children in the orphanages, because that's going to vary too based on the country of origin. 
I mean, some countries are more developed, others are more third world, and therefore the level of care that infants are receiving for children ages zero to two, for example, you know, that's a consideration too, because those are important developmental years. So things worth considering when evaluating which country you're looking at. Hmm, that's an interesting point. So assuming that maybe a orphanage had better care, did that mean that it would have cost more to adopt a child from that place versus somewhere that maybe the children weren't as well taken care of? I think not necessarily. I feel like country to country, it's going to vary a little bit, but it's still within certain price ranges. So I don't, I don't think that price is really the driving factor. That's like a separate consideration from cost and expenses. It's just like trying to understand what different countries are like in their treatment of orphan children and what their facilities look like. You know, what do their orphanages look like? Are kids well cared for? How many caregivers are there relative to the number of kids? Which is very difficult to ascertain, I think, especially as an adoptive parent. But sometimes the agencies can give you a little bit of information about that. I think that in the case for me and my wife, it was kind of funny because we were really focusing on China, right? Being Chinese Americans, we figured that adopting from China made sense, made sense for us. Adopting a Chinese baby sort of seems more seamless for our family. And in the end, all that went out the window because we, we did not end up adopting from China. Oh, so what happened? <laughs> well, as we were doing research and tried just to collect information and educate ourselves, one of our dearest and best friends from college, we told her, I think my wife shared with her that we were on this sort of adoption journey. We were committed to adoption and we were doing our research and we were looking at China. And even though the expectation was that China's adoption program internationally was, was and was expected to become more and more restrictive, our great friend from college said, oh, if you guys are considering adoption, you have to meet with my dear family friend who founded an orphanage 20 years ago in Taiwan. And our classmate from college currently lives in Taiwan. She was living and working in Taiwan at that time. And she said, you have to meet my friend because there are these two American women who are expats in Taiwan, on the island of Taiwan. And the wives, while the husbands were there for, for their work, the wives had founded this orphanage to help women and help children of those women. Some of them, you know, were like in domestic abuse situations or may have like substance abuse problems. Other times it's just a young parent who is not equipped to be a parent yet. So our friend said, oh, you've got to, you've got to talk to my family friend. So that's what we did. And we ended up adopting from the island of Taiwan. That's amazing. So you didn't go with an adoption agency at all. You just went with the orphanage and then figured out the paperwork that way? It was a, not unorthodox, but it was a little bit different in that rather than dealing with a U.S.-based agency, we were working directly with this agency slash orphanage in Taiwan run by Americans. But as it turns out, they actually do not place many children in the United States. 
And that was because of like paperwork and administrative requirements. And what they had done is they most frequently placed children in countries that had, you know, very good social systems and medical. So I think some countries in Europe, Australia, where there is a, you know, medical plan for everybody, there's like socialized medicine, because that was less due diligence that they had to do on their end. They knew that there were certain countries that provided medical and benefits, and it was just, it was less work on their part. Plus, the government to government relationships were better. So there was less paperwork. That is, okay, so interesting. I want to talk about the numbers, if, if you recall them. So when you were going through this process, like how much, do you remember like how much did it cost overall? Let's not even talk about the health insurance part yet, but how much did it cost even deal with the orphanage, I guess you can say directly? And then how much did it cost for you to get all the paperwork? I don't know what the breakdown is. I think that budgeting, for us, budgeting somewhere in the range of twenty to $30,000 for everything. That sounds about right. And I think that the prices have increased some. It's probably a little bit higher now. Hmm. Okay. So for them to do their due diligence in terms of health insurance, what did you have to do to prove that you and your wife are going to provide this child ample health insurance or health care? Yes. And this is part of the adoption process. I think it doesn't matter if it's international or domestic, but there is work to be done at home before you leave the country or do anything. And that process is called a home study, whereby you are hiring a social worker locally to come visit your home. They ask you questions. They ask you about your, your job, your occupation. They ask you about your relationship, right? Even your marriage and a little bit about your families, your backgrounds. And all of this information is being collected by a social worker who is writing a report that will be submitted to the agency who's processing the adoption. Hmm. And so how long, how long was that process? I can't really remember. I mean, I would say probably around three months because I think that, you know, the social worker did come to our home. You know, it, there, were, there were, I think, a couple of interviews. And there's a medical component, too, because I think that we had to get physicals, and, and this varies from country to country. I know as China, as their, as their rules and process became more and more difficult, I think at one point I had heard that there was a body mass index that also had to be submitted, which was controversial because people are like, now it matters if I'm obese? Like, like the Chinese government would say, yes, it does matter. But Americans were questioning, like, what's, like how, where, where is this line of like, privacy? And what's okay, not okay to ask as part of the process. Yeah, that's that's a new <laughs> one. That, well, not that I've heard much about adoption, but that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, so money aside, I mean, of course, I can only imagine that it was very trying time or an emotional time. Like, Do you recall like what you and your wife were going through? Maybe the discussions, any kind of stressful moments during that whole time? I remember praying a lot. And I think it, the, the, like the concerns and the worries, that comes for any parent because so much is out of your control, right? You're just hoping for a happy, healthy child. I think when it comes to adoption, there's just this question mark because you don't have that biological connection. 
So if you're having a if you're having your own child biologically, you're still worried. Like you're worried about being a parent. You're worried about making mistakes. You're worried about are you going to do the right things. You're also worried: is my child going to be healthy and happy? But you're kind of hoping that okay, if I look at I did okay in school. Hopefully, my child will do okay in school. I felt like as an adoptive parent, I didn't have that connection to give me a little bit of uh, <laughs> security or guidance. Like that was another thing that I was worried about. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what this kid's background is going to be as far as intellect or, you know, because you go through all these conversations in your mind about what is environment versus genetic. And you never know. I mean, I think that I'll really never know the answer to many of those questions, even as my kids, they're now in school, they're all doing well, they are healthy and happy. But those are some of the things that I was worried about because the way that it worked in our case, because if you are adopting in China, many of those kids are being put up for adoption because of the one-child policy. Because of that, it's predominantly girls that are being adopted. There are far fewer boys. This is not the case in Taiwan. They do not have a one-child policy, so boys, girls. I think it was a pretty even, a pretty even mix. And in China, many of those girls are abandoned. They're left at the doorstep of an orphanage, and、um, that was not the case in Taiwan. Taiwan actually followed closer to a domestic U.S. adoption in that birth mother had a role in placing where the child went. The birth mothers in Taiwan at the agency that we worked with, they actually looked at. I don't think they got to see the whole home study, but we had like a little booklet with photos of me and my wife, of our house, I think of our extended family, so my parents, my wife's mother, our siblings, and I think that the birth, the birth mother and or birth family, could look at some of these pictures and actually. Select. I think they had a role in choosing where the child was going to be placed. So interesting. So all the while, while you're going through this process, right? You had your had the social work coming for a couple months. You were going back and forth with the adoption agency. Was there ever a thought in your head or your wife's head that maybe this is going to fall through? That we're spending all this money and just somehow is not going to work out. Not so much, but you know, to put it in perspective, I've gone through like this fertility treatment process that I think had much higher odds of not working or going through. So I think by the time we reached this process of adoption, that was less of a worry. I think it was just the lack of control that caused me some anxiety because I felt like, all right, well, we put a nice. Little photo booklet together. I have no idea on the other side of the world who is going through this photo booklet, how it looks, how it's going to be perceived, and will we be selected? And、uh, I think more importantly, it's like, will it be a boy? Will it be a girl? I had no idea. We,、um, you can put in a preference, and we said, you know, let the world, let God decide for us. We said we don't care if it's a boy or if it's a girl. Let's just see where things fall. So at the end of the day, it wasn't really. I mean, the financials obviously you had to save up for it. At the end of the day, it was really more this being patient about the process is what I'm getting. Correct, because you don't know how long the process will take, because you don't know when you will be selected. 
I think both by the birth family and by the agency. So you just don't know. I mean, like there's an expectation that I think just paperwork wise, getting the home study done, submitting all the application and government paperwork, you know, that's going to easily take, I'm going to say like seven to 12 months just to get everything in place. Maybe it's less than that, but probably it took a year from the time that we started the home study process, paperwork, and then actually they, you know, we got the call. They're like, oh, you guys have a daughter and here are some pictures. At that point, there was about a seven, there was a seven month period from our daughter's birth where the agency was periodically sending us photos and we could actually see somebody. (laughs) We saw the baby, but it wasn't immediate. There was going to be a seven month process before we could go pick her up because there was, I guess, there was paperwork being processed on the other side in country. Hmm. So describe to me the the feeling when you first met your daughter. That was insane. <laughs> For us, we we went to the orphanage where our daughter spent the, se- the first seven months of her life. And you go there. It's really a cool place because they have areas where the babies are sleeping. They have cribs. They have toys. There's like a playroom with a sort of padded floor where the kids can crawl around. They have toys. There are a lot of volunteers that go there throughout the week, interacting with the children and playing with the children. And we had to, everybody who goes in there wears a, I don't know what you call it. It's not a smock. What is that? It's like a more of a medical, it's like a, more like a gown almost just to, yeah, you put it over your clothes. Okay, I know you're talking about. You know, just to, I think for, to keep the, place more sterilized and clean. So we put those on and we are waiting in this play area and they brought our daughter out to to us. Yeah, that was wild to to hold this seven-month-year-old baby. And surprisingly, you feel like family right away. It just felt right. It was kind of wild. She wasn't crying. She was very curious. And my wife and I were holding her. We had other family there with us. So they were taking pictures. It was really a special day. That's amazing. So from that experience, obviously, you adopted two more children. So based on what you experienced and learned, was there anything that you did differently with the subsequent children that you adopted? The second one went fairly similarly. We adopted a boy. We also picked him up when he was seven months old. So I think timing wise, everything worked very similarly. And upon returning to the U.S., we had a we had a choice whether or not to readopt in the United States. I mean, the only difference is if you do not readopt, you have an international birth certificate. But if you go through a readoption process in the local court, so we went to a local court in New Jersey and we readopted our daughter, we readopted our son, then you get a U.S. birth certificate. So, you know, when when the kids go to camp or they enroll in school, sometimes you need a birth certificate or you need copies. It just makes it easier to um, to get copies if you need it. And that readoption process was fairly easy. With our daughter, we did hire an attorney locally to prepare the paperwork. And uh, that paperwork is submitted to the court. With number two and number three, we could use the paperwork from the first time as a template and I could do it myself. Okay, so it saved you a little bit of money the second, third time around just because you you knew the process fairly well by that point. 
Yes, for the readoption process, which again, not necessary, but we kind of do it for convenience because it makes it easier to get birth certificates. And then I guess it was slightly more official in the eyes of the U.S. government, but but really didn't make a difference with our with our youngest daughter, adoption number three. That one was actually a little bit different because it required us to go to Taiwan not once but twice. And that was just due to the fact that on the other side, the adoption process that's taking place, there is a judge who has to hear the case and I think approve the process with the birth mother there, right? The birth mother is actually going to court, giving up her right as a parent so that this adoption can take place. And the, the judge that was assigned our case with our third child, for some reason, it's not unheard of, but it's a little uncommon, required the adoptive parents to show up in court. Usually that, that doesn't happen. So if you're talking about unexpected expense, that was one. We were not expecting to have to go to Taiwan just to appear in court. And uh, I guess the downside was extra cost. The upside was that we got to meet our daughter and spend a few days with her uh, earlier. Oh, but then, then you have to go home and wait again. So that's really difficult. <laughs> I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. If there's one major lesson that you can kind of glean from this whole experience, what would it be? What would it be? For me, I think that it, it's being open to the idea of adoption because at the start, I was a little bit reluctant, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't as open to the idea at the start, even though it was an alternative that, that we, that we had to go. Like <laughs> for us, it was going to be like, perhaps no kids versus adoption. And I think I was a little reluctant at the start. Now that I'm a dad to three, no regrets. And I feel like I'm very open to the idea. I don't have the reservations that I once had. All right, Andy, one last question is, how are you living beyond the dollar? How am I living beyond the dollar? Well, if you think about the things that are most important to you, I think that it's not, it's not about the dollar. I mean, of course, we need money to live. We, money gives us flexibility and choices and the ability to do different things. But when push comes to shove, it's like, to be home with, with our kids or going to a soccer game or going to a violin lesson like I will tonight, that's what it's all about. Well, Andy, where can everyone find you? Tell us about your amazing podcast. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Listeners can find me at inspiredmoney.fm. I'm the host of Inspired Money. I'm also a fee-only financial advisor. But the, the podcast is really a, uh, it's really a passion project slash I try to tie it into work with the money, but I just have fun talking to all kinds of different guests, such a diverse group of people from entrepreneurs to artists to screenwriters to pretty much anybody, including a former WWE wrestler to understand how they are doing inspired and positive things with their money. Cool. I'll make sure to link to that episode in the show notes. So Andy, thank you again for coming on Me on the Dollar. Thank you, Sarah. It was a blast. So thank you for sticking around to the end. I hope you enjoyed Andrew's story. And I just, that account of him holding his child for the first time really just sent chills down my spine. Now, let's talk about adoption. 
and some of the lessons that we can learn from Andrew's story. So the biggest one I would say is to be as open and flexible as possible about the entire process. So you've heard Andrew and his wife went through a number of different adoption agencies. They were looking at specific countries and then somehow landed in Taiwan at this orphanage based on the fact that he knew a friend of a friend. It wasn't that just, it was just amazing, right? So just really consider that. Something else you think about is the emotional aspect of it, right? It, it can cost a lot, but it's really about do you want to adopt domestically? So within the US or whatever country you're from, are you interested in adopting a foster child? Have you considered the fact that if you do, let's say, to do foster care instead of adopting, that the birth parent might still have guardianship rights? Or even if you do adopt and the birth parent relinquishes parental rights, they can actually file a petition to reverse that in court. So there's that to consider, not to say don't do it because you're scared of the the emotional repercussions, but that's really something to think about seriously. Are you willing to to go through that possibility and all of that? You know, other things to think about is that it will be stressful no matter which route you choose. There's paperwork, there's saving up for it, there's applying to grants, which I'll just talk about in a quick second. A social worker is going to follow you around. There might be medical tests, you know, like, like Andrew mentioned. So it's it can be a long, drawn-up process. I think for him, it took a few years. For many adopted parents, it takes a long amount of time. And so during this stress, you don't know if it's going to manifest into different types of spending patterns. And so let's say you're really stressed one day. You're like, oh, I'm just going to go have a drink with my friend. So that's leading you to spend money. Or you decide to go get a manicure because you're stressed or or you want to go on a shopping spree, whatever it is. So the stress of it can lead you to spend money mindlessly. And so that's something to to be aware of. Something else to think about before we get to some of the resources is to think about the paperwork. And so Andrew and his wife decided to readopt their children when they arrived in the US. So they don't have to really think about going back to their children's birth country to get birth certificates or if something does happen. So that can be a financial burden if you find that you do need it, let's say a birth certificate, and you have to fly all the way back to Asia or whatever country it is to do that, right? It takes time because you take time off work. It costs money. Um, let's say you don't have any paid time off anymore and hotels, flights, all of those things. Now, Adoption can be expensive. Like Andrew said, it's about, for him, I think it was about twenty dollars to $30,000. The costs probably are more than that. I can't specifically quote you a number. I unfortunately don't know what it's like in other countries. So that's, that's really something to consider. But the good news is that there are organizations in the US, I'm sure if you search in your own country, there are plenty of resources as well. Anyways, so U.S. specifically, there are organizations. So one, for example, that I found was called adopttogether.org. I'll link to a few others in the show notes where this organization actually connects prospective adoptive families to different grants. So it can be based on your expenses, based on the adoption status, and a bunch of other different criteria. So consider looking at those just to see what is possible. Because if 
you don't have twenty to thirty thousand dollars to spend doesn't mean you can't adopt. It, you might have to be a little bit creative in terms of what you can and cannot do. I want to preface this: I am not a tax lawyer or tax professional, but you can get a bit of a, I guess you can say a kickback, maybe we can call it the adoption tax credit. Again, this is US specific. So kind of like the the child tax credit that you can get. So you might be able to save a little bit on your taxes. This could be related to paperwork that's involved. But again, talk with a tax professional, your accountant, go through the IRS website, not the sexiest place to go. I'm going to say that right now, but but check that out and just to see what your options are. Right? You want to know as far ahead as possible what you might need to anticipate because while you're in the thick of it, I'm going to assume that money might be the last thing on your mind. You're too worried about, oh, do I get to meet my child? Is it going to be a boy? Is it going to be a girl? All of those things. So just really, really consider getting all that prep work and trying to find ways to manage the stress, and hopefully it will work out. So no challenge for you this week. Actually, maybe the challenge is to just start looking at resources. Let me know if you've adopted or you were adopted and and the experience. I would really love to hear it or any questions or feedback about the show. You can find me on Instagram at beyondthedollar or email me hello at beyondthedollar.co. All right, until next time. Thank you so much for listening in on Beyond the Dollar. If you like what you heard, please share with a friend. It'll help share the mission of what we're trying to do, which is to have more deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. Tag them on Instagram or one of my posts at Beyond the Dollar. Send them a link. Whatever you want to do to spread the mission of what we're doing here. Now, if you feel that putting money towards the things that really matter is a challenge for you, download our values-based spending guide. You'll gain clarity around what matters to you most in life, be able to name your most important values, and how to start putting money towards those things. To download the values-based spending guide, go to beyondthedollar.co slash values. Thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. And thanks to Donovan Durant for providing this awesome music. Music.